I'm Olga Stella, the Executive Director of Design Corps Detroit. Thank you for joining us for Season 2 of the Detroit City of Design podcast. As stewards of Detroit's UNESCO City of Design designation, we aim to raise your awareness of how design can create conditions for better quality of life and economic opportunity for all. Designers are professional problem solvers. And in Season 2, we will discuss the value of design to business and society. I'm very excited to have Jessica Halfand on the podcast today, an award-winning designer, artist, writer, and the founding editor of Design Observer. Jessica is the author of numerous books on visual and cultural criticism and is also the host of two podcasts, The Observatory and The Design of Business, The Business of Design. Today, we will discuss the impact that crisis can have on the creative process and the crucial role design will play in helping businesses adapt to our new reality. Well, Jessica, I'm just so excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been an avid listener of the Observatory and the Design of Business, the Business of Design, and so it's a real honor to have you join us today. I couldn't be happier. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. And you know, you sit at such an interesting place during these difficult times. You know, we're in the the middle of the pandemic, and from where you sit as a, a critic, a designer, a teacher, how are you seeing the ways that designers can be integral? to solving the problems that are facing us today? That is a big question and an (laughs) excellent question. And of course, there are many perspectives on that depending on, I think, many things, not least of which is your age and where you come out at this moment and in between professions and where those professions are taking all of us. I've been particularly attuned to students and to young emerging designers who, if we feel rudderless, they are just completely unmoored Mm -hmm. from a reality that, you know, the educator in me, the mother in me, my graduate students used to call me design mom because (laughs) I used to sit down with them and say, did you take your vitamins? Now let's talk about your thesis. And I I think that's still kind of the way I operate. And so I expect we'll talk about this a little bit later uh, on the podcast, but I've been thinking about students a lot because they really have been uh, cast adrift. But I think the saving grace, if there is one at this moment for professional working designers, uh, corporate designers, designers on teams, I think there's two things that come to mind. One is that I think that urgency breeds a kind of creativity. I Mm -hmm. think it just people that are imaginative, people whose go-to solutions in the world have to do with trying to maybe reassess and reassert the coordinates that define any problem, which is a very uh, designer thing to do, but I think it's a very creative thing to do. So I think that's the first thing. But I think the other thing that I'm seeing, particularly as I dimensionalize my understanding of this crisis in terms of big problems, corporate problems, larger business problems, it's that really good designers are not afraid to ask penetrating questions. Mm -hmm. And it's that willingness to interrogate your assumptions and say, I don't know what that word means, or how can we maybe get to this a different way? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily, again, just a design conceit. It's a creative sort of larger conceptual ideological position that says, I am here to help you solve these wicked problems. We know they're big. Let's break them down. And let's use that part of our mind that is our imagination to maybe get to a different rationale and reroute ourselves to a different end because obviously the playbooks, the protocols, the systems, the best practices, it's not clear that they're getting us where we need to go. You're right. The need for creativity is now more than ever. And, you know, I wonder whether the decision makers, you know, the business decision makers, if they're past the point of 
panic and freezing and trying to address just the cash bloodletting that's happening right now and to start to think about that. And if designers who are within these organizations or maybe standing on the outside of them, how can they start to make that case you know, to the businessy types who are making these decisions within organizations, whether it's government or corporations? You know, you're uh, now that we're all on Zoom all day long. I said to someone the other day, "You're only as good as your rectangle, right?" right? So, you're, in a sense, you're only as good as the person you report to. You're only as good as the corporation you work for. Leadership, which is something that we think about a lot at Design Observer, we think about a lot on the podcast, the Design of Business, how we can actually redefine the vocabulary, the way we talk about leadership, the way we talk about teams. I think it's a very difficult moment to be self-actualized. I mean, it's an important moment to be self-actualized, but I think in these complex organizations, it's really tough. I will say, though, that when designers are embedded into teams and not siloed separately, Mm -hmm. we're finding empirically looking at different corporations that the values of design become organic to all aspects of the organization. And so this is why, for example, back in the days when we could gather in person and not be concerned about virus problems, uh, we were doing an annual conference on the design of business. And the first one we did, we did at the Yale School of Management when Michael Beirut and I were teaching there, which we are not doing any longer. And the goal of that conference, which speaks to your question, I think, and to this idea of non-siloed design skill, is that we wanted to make the case to these, really an, an exceptional program there, the School of Management at Yale, we wanted to make the case that if you have a designer in your C-suite, you are more likely to be ahead of the curve in a million different ways. And so we did that not by just preaching to the choir or to the what we hoped would be the choir, mm-hmm. but by bringing in senior executives in creative services, senior creative directors at large corporations to present with their CEOs. So we had the head of Pepsi with uh, Maura Porcini, who's the creative director at Pepsi. We had the head of the New York Times with Tom Bodkin, who's for a long time been the senior creative director at the Times. And these conversations that were moderated in front of an audience of maybe 150, 200 people were really seismic in the way they moved the needle towards a conversation where the designer wasn't just this other person who you went to once you had a strategy. It wasn't a separate department that reported to marketing or reported to senior management. It was actually right up there at the very top, having the important critical conversations at the moment they needed to happen. And so I think to come back to your question, the idea that designers will always gravitate together. I mean, they speak a language, Mm -hmm. they've had similar schooling and they understand, I mean, increasingly, I think in education, we're starting to teach designers to expand their own vocabulary so that when they're teamed with engineers, and senior executives, they're not only speaking design speak, but it's not enough to come from below with educational practices. I think it has to really happen organically and systemically in corporations where it's not just get the team together and report to an executive. It's Mm -hmm. bring designers in at the highest possible level and watch things start to change. Yeah. Involve them in the problem solving from the get-go as opposed to just creating an aesthetic treatment for the solution at the end. Can I give you one really quick example? I would love to hear it. It's a Detroit-related example. So my wonderful co-host, Ellen McGirt, who writes a column on inclusion and race in business called Race Ahead that all of your listeners should subscribe to because it's fantastic. For Fortune. She said Fortune. She wrote this wonderful thing back in 2006 about Ford and how when the Taurus debuted in 1985, it was different, and the team that created it was different, and that in 1980, Ford had lost, I think, $1.5 billion. 
So what they did was to actually bring in a team of 400 engineers and designers and marketers, and they put them in a room and they set them loose. And that brainstorming put Ford back in business in a really big way. And that's when the Taurus was born. It was Motor Trend's car of the year in 1986. Later, it was discontinued. But the story, the, the corporate design story of put 400 people in a room and set them loose. This is not about best practices. This is Mm -hmm. not about playbooks. It's about what happens when you trust in people and you trust in the creative process. And that invention, I just have a hard time. And I'm I'm a very vocal opponent of white walls and post-it notes. Mm -hmm. I know that that has become the go-to visual vernacular that we say when we're solving problems. I think there are many other ways to do it. And I think designers are very skilled in finding those ways and playing well with others. Right. Yeah, we're starting to see, you know, Ford, not just looking at their products, but really looking at the whole future of mobility and the work that they're doing now to transform our formerly abandoned Michigan Central Railroad into a center for mobility and a, a center for innovation. And and it is very much this kind of iterative creative problem-solving process, not just internally, but also externally with community stakeholders. It's been really fun to watch and we'll you know, see how it all unfolds over the next couple of years. I think it's a beautiful example you gave because process is not outcome. Right. And it's scary if you're a big corporation, money is on the line and revenue models are broken to not think about outcome. But designers, I think if there was a difficult tension for Michael and Myself, when we taught at the School of Management, it was that, as our friend Deborah Burke, the architect, said, you know, designers think laterally and business people think linearly. And it Mm -hmm. was a difficult thing to invest in the process to recognize that the component parts, changing the words, changing the approach, investigating, turning, inverting the paradigms by which they knew success could be made or could be achieved or could be banked on is not necessarily a creative act. And so process is a scary, messy word for people who are quant thinkers Mm -hmm. sometimes. That is what we learn. And whether there's a pandemic or not, I think that's an ongoing thing. It is really interesting because, you know, all the management writing talks about, you know, investing in your culture. But process, I mean, what is culture? It is... It is process. You're right. You know, norms and all of that. And it's interesting to try to unpack that for business leaders. You've interviewed so many designers and decision makers over the seven seasons of the Business of Design, Design of Business podcast. What themes have really emerged that start to help demonstrate that value of the design process, both to the outcomes, but also to the culture and the values of these different organizations? It's an excellent question. And let me just say that the podcast you're referring to, the Design of Business, the Business of Design was co-hosted when we were at Yale, Michael Beirut and myself, we did the first six seasons together. And then when we left Yale, I have done the last season with Ellen McGirt, my co-host at Fortune, and uh, we are just about to begin season eight. The thing I'm the most excited about that we're seeing, there's three people who come to mind. They are Timothy Geithner, the former Secretary of the Treasury. I know not a designer, but bear with me, I'll get back to this. Uh, John Awada, who was for over 30 years, the head of marketing and design at IBM, And James Ree, who is a Korean-American businessman who bought in bankruptcy the Ashley Stewart brand of clothing and brought it back to roaring success. So none of them are designers. One is trained as a communication specialist. One is a businessman and an attorney, Mm -hmm. both degrees at Harvard, brainiac. They're all brainiacs. And uh, Timothy Geithner is, you know, an economist, someone who had a public political life. 
The three of them held positions of enormous power. The three of them have lots of experience and stick to in the things that they did, right? So they both for a long time stayed with difficult moments of adversity. And I was blown away by their humility, by their kindness, by their sense of, I think, service and stewardship and by their character. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that I, who have not any background in leadership, who came to my work at Design Observer, my work as an artist, as an educator, you know, I'm just me. I went to Quaker school, right? Like I just like, you know, bumbling along like everybody. <laughs> I found it so remarkable that the work they did really had nothing to do with the work and it had to do with who they were as people. And that comes back to something that I think is a theme that Ellen and I are finding at the Design of Business, which is that leadership is primarily about character and it is about the person that you are and the guidance that you bring. And leadership is about listening as much as it is about looking. It's about hiring people that are smarter than you and better than you. It's about staying with it when the times get difficult. It's about not panicking. Mm -hmm. It's about recognizing where the limits are. And I think that to Mm -hmm. me was so extraordinary. Design can so often be flashy and fancy and shiny and you know, stars don't emit their own light, right? Like there's something about the idea that these people showed in their conversations with us such remarkable demonstrations to me of integrity and personal understanding about reality. Just such humility. I'll say it over and over again. I was really blown away. And I think that I could easily pair it with examples of leadership that I thought were morally reprehensible. A leader of a big corporation I recently heard who said, you can't be a leader without a follower. Right. Which I thought was really, and you're saying this to a group of students, and I thought this is not what they need to hear. This was not helpful. I think it's an important thing to say that leadership is about character. Right. It's even more important now because the decisions that leaders are having to make are really, really hard decisions and impact people's lives in every way. They impact their safety. They impact their financial well-being. And I think that is going to be even more important as we try to navigate the waters, you know, ahead. As you think about these waters ahead, so obviously we're living in a world that is never going back (laughs) to the way it was before the virus, you know, began its community spread here. And everything has changed and will stay changed. So recognizing that, you know, what are the other trends that get implicated in this new world that, you know, we should all be watching, that decision makers should be watching and considering as they're trying to figure out how to navigate? Well, I can't speak for big, complicated businesses, although I will say that if you are one of those big, complicated businesses, you should get yourself an organizational behavior person because those people have got it going on. I was so impressed when I was at the School of Management at Yale with these people who are trained as psychologists, and they teach courses on things like global virtual teams, and they look at I mean, we are not equipped, those of us who think that a Zoom call, I mean, our morale building on Zoom means having a really pretty background, wrong. It's not about that. (laughs) And it's a wonderful piece in the New York Times today, actually, by a writer who talks about the discomforting nature of delay on a phone call or not being able to look at someone's face or the bigger the room, the more people on a screen, the less in touch you are with people. I wrote a book last year on the visual history of the face, and this was really, it was very resonant to me because it's true that we traffic in the mirroring of a kind of validation we see in other people's faces, and this distancing is throwing a huge wrench in that. So it's time to get, Mm -hmm. I think, ruthlessly objective about the degree to which 
this is not a design problem. It is an organizational behavior problem. I'm a big, big fan of these people who do that work. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge field that we should know more about. But the flip side of that, what I can speak to with a little more, not authority, but certainly confidence, is that I have been concerned for a number of years as an educator, watching students graduate from elite institutions, programs in design and I mean, at Yale, I was teaching students in economics and forestry. I mean, you know, really smart kids. I was just out at Caltech this winter teaching these incredible scientists, um, astronomers, that these students who are graduating from these institutions all across the world, who want to work in technology, who want to work in big business, who want to work in design, are being asked to join collaborative teams. Now, there's been a lot written about that, and there are many people who can mm -hmm. speak on behalf of that, certainly the people at IBM, who I think are the biggest hiring group of designers anywhere who are teaming designers with engineers all the time who need to, again, teach designers how to speak languages that aren't just design. The problem I'm seeing is that the team is the magnet. The team is the alluring carrot at the end of the stick that makes the young student newly minted into whatever profession they've chosen, gets them to jump in the car on a plane, take a job, join a team. Something's missing in there mm -hmm. now that those teams have been torpedoed into a million little boxes on Zoom, mm -hmm. which is that the student leaving the nest of support and understanding and mentorship that comes out of education is not necessarily equipped to bring those skills to bear on a large, complicated team process because we are teaching them how to hone their craft. We're teaching them how to be who they are. The problem is, is that we speak in team language. We adhere to team jargon. And I think there are great people that run teams and terrible people that run teams. But what gets lost and what's particularly getting lost right now, which is why I'm running this column every day, is the existential moment when you have been cast adrift by infrastructure or frameworks or all of those things that you thought you were signing on for. Suddenly it's just you alone in your home at a desk trying to make sense of the world you thought you were about to join. That is a real moment of crisis because those are the leaders of tomorrow. Those are the practitioners of tomorrow. And we cannot let them get lost in this shuffle. It rings so true because, you know, this is disruptive for all of us, but is devastating for some of us. And, and especially those young people who are trying to start out and not having that mentoring. I couldn't relate more to that. I mean, think about 10 years ago, you know, the same students who struggled through the financial crisis as they graduated. And this is, you know, a thousand times more challenging. Right. Why don't we talk a little bit more about your new project, the Self-Reliance Project, and, you know, this new daily essay about being a maker in this time of crisis. I think, I think our audience would really I'd like to learn more about your thoughts on how a challenging time like this can be a catalyst for introspection and creativity. I would love to talk about that. So the backstory here, Olga, is that I was approached by an editor at Thames and Hudson in London about an idea he had to re-release Ralph Waldo Emerson's famous canonical essay from 1841, uh, which is on self-reliance. And he felt that Obviously, that it speaks for itself, that the title certainly speaks for itself, and he felt that it was a, a very opportune moment and an urgent moment to re-release this text, knowing full well, as he did, that it's quite dated. 1841 was a long time ago. 
It's very white. It's very male. It's very Western. It's very American. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's an American editor living in London who studied philosophy. And we had a very, um, I think, provocative conversation about how this text might be reissued at a moment when we could use a little historical guidance that might also become sort of relevant to this moment. And I had been thinking parallel and prior to this conversation about the fact that I'm in lockdown. I came out to Los Angeles this winter. I got stuck here. I love it here. Not necessarily being stuck, but I do love it here. Mm -hmm. But I felt that I might do something on Design Observer that was a daily column, some kind of daily way to look at something that that might help others. So what might that be? I mean, again, that's that's a thing of leadership, right? I want to keep morale up for our readers. I want to not be a bully pulpit boosterism kind of person. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it's not my first rodeo with, you know, I lived through 9-11. I lived through other crises, nothing quite as dark as this, mind you. But I thought, what could I do? And the minute he said self-reliance and looking at that essay, I thought, aha, the bell started to go off in my mind. I said, what if I wrote a daily column that looked at, again, it comes back to this question of the young person who's between school and a team. What if I looked at this really existential moment through the lens of Emerson, rereading him at this moment as a lens through which to consider the value of studio practice? Because presumably, and I'm going out on a bit of a limb, but not much of one, presumably the person who decided to go to school to study art, design, even theater, even architecture, many disciplines that surround Mm -hmm. the creative mindset, presumably people did this because they wanted to make things. They wanted to be involved in using their mind creatively. So suddenly we became a world of post-its and best practices and teams. That doesn't really speak to the fact that whether you're quarantining with a family of six or you're by yourself, it's your life. It's, you know, you came into this life alone. You're going to leave this life alone. This is your life and your professional life that beckons. What does that mean? Where's your voice? How do you locate coordinates that might be different than the ones in which you feel trapped right now? And I started to think about this and I thought, I can do that. Now, mm-hmm. when I get to the end of every week, Olga, and it's Friday and I've written five essays, I'm ready to stick a fork in my eye. It's really hard. I just, I'm, just, I'm, writing, I'm writing number 26 right now. It's hard. I'm, I vow to keep this up during quarantine. I hope I can. But I have about 300 people subscribing to it. I'm giving talks to students. I spoke to about 150 students last week who are part of something called the Design for America, which is a sort of franchise. I think it's at 41 schools across the country. And these students were asking questions like, how do I start? Where do I go? Mm -hmm. How do I differentiate my life from the career I've chosen? What does it mean to make work when no one's giving me a brief. I mean, these are basic essential questions. And I thought that is exactly why I'm writing this column. And it's not just for students, although they were, I think the first line of defense here, they're my primary audience. It really is to look at the fact that we are not our work, we are not our employers, that the ethical, moral compunctions and conditions that drive who we are as human beings, something I write about in all my books, I think this is a moment where we have to come to a a real reckoning with who we are as a people, which begins with who we are as individuals. It's just, it ties back to what you were saying earlier in our conversation around integrity and character. Reading these essays is a way to interrogate your own character. I think it's a good use of time right now (laughs) as as we're hunkered down. 
What advice did you give the students that you were talking to about how to respond to these challenges? You know, if, if there was a top two or three. Yeah, no, well, well the, the top one I would say is that you are not your work. And so if you were yeah. getting a design degree, and this is the same for you, and you could be in your late 20s or your early 30s between jobs, thinking about a new career, thinking about graduate students, I think are in some ways suffering even more because they're getting professional degrees, mm-hmm. that you just stop and you take stock of who you are and not just what you do. So the example I gave to the young student who asked the question, and I have been asked the question more than once, which makes me think it's a question on many people's minds, is, for example, let's say you grew up in a bilingual household. You speak another language. That's just not a skill. That's a, that's a superpower. Mm-hmm. That's an understanding of an entire different cultural realm. You like to write. You like poetry. You're a gardener. You like to draw. It doesn't matter that the thing that you do, you play the cello. And really, I mean, there's an entire list of things that make you who you are. And to basically use this time to take a step back. I'm not here to tell people how to repay their student loans. That is a huge problem. I'm not here to tell people how to get a job when no one's hiring. Huge problem. But what I can do, and a friend joked that my column is daily pastoral guidance for the creatively despondent, which (laughs) I suppose it is. What I can do is take that giant seismic you know, Herculean problem that feels like it's just an enormous thing torpedoing you into an abyss of mediocrity from which you'll never emerge. No, wrong. Step back. Get back on dry land. What I can do is say, okay, let's do an inventory. Make a list of all the things you love to do, all the things you don't love to do. And so you start to break apart skills from interests. You start to read things that maybe you aren't reading in school. Mm-hmm. We read magazines instead of books. Uh, one of the tips I found, I mean, this is helping me that I miss conversation. So I'm listening to more conversational podcasts. I mm-hmm. want to read books, but I don't want to sit and read them because it's too quiet and lonely. So I listen to them on tape mm-hmm. and then I find someone reading them. I find someone with a British accent or mm-hmm. right, there's so many ways to expand the way you consume the things that sort of stoke the engine mm-hmm. or feed the, it's sort of like, how do you nourish yourself? in a time of need with things that will not make you feel like you're copying or revisiting that. I will say that, and this is not just for students, people that are suffering the most are the people who want things to be the way they were. And you said this yourself a moment ago. They won't become the way they were. That's right. So anyone who begins a sentence, I wish I, I, why can't I, I used to, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a fool's errand. And it's not that you can't feel that way and acknowledge that you're sad, acknowledge that you miss your friends, that you want to hug your children. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But what you have to do, I think, to thrive or at least to survive in a moment of such epic ambiguity is to recognize that you are more than the sum of your parts. And design by its very nature knows that. Designers know that. We are a multifaceted group of people who think we're agile thinkers. We don't need to be told that we're agile. We are agile. Creative Mm -hmm. people have that natural agility. And we just have to dig a little deeper and maybe find resources we didn't know we had. And having finding those resources and mining them and tapping into them, that is pure Emerson. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you finding your own practice changing as a result of this, both in terms of the writing and just the self-reflection and the crisis? I am. And I will say it is unusual to be doing this alone. It's a particular cross to bear for those of us who, you know, it's like musical chairs. Mm -hmm. You know, if you got in that chair and there were people around you, great. You have problems, but there are also things that are great. People that are alone, and again, a lot of students are facing this, kids who couldn't go home to their families because of visas. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it's hard. Yeah. But it also means you have more me time than you ever thought you needed. 
And that can be scary. I think we're used to checking in. We're used to, you know, why do people write in coffee shops? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Thoreau didn't write in a coffee shop. Right. <laughs> so again, come back to this moment of creative practice, of visiting your practice, that the studio is a sanctuary, bearing witness to your work. I'm writing about this in the next column. I had a wonderful mentor in graduate school who, as he got to the end of his life, went to his studio every day, and some days he just sharpened his pencils, and that was enough, right? It doesn't have to be writing the great American novel. And so what starts to happen is that the fissures that you thought were going to break you, those fault lines actually become islands of new opportunity. That is a really exciting thing when that happens. I'll give you an example, if I may. Absolutely. I am a painter, and I've been working on a very complicated series of paintings. They're complicated because I paint on top of photographs and then I make these giant prints and then I paint on top of the prints. It's very labor intensive. And the archive I've been working with since the summer is in a place I can't get to because of the quarantine. And it's about faces and I'm interested in portraiture and I wrote a book on faces and I started to drill down like the bull weevil that I am. And I thought, you know, it's really interesting. It's not about Zoom because I see those faces, but they're small and there are many of them or my children, I FaceTime with them and it's on my phone. Now, what do I see? What are the faces coming into my life in a big, bold, different way? And I realized, ridiculous as this sounds, it's the faces of MSNBC. Mm-hmm. So I started taking photographs of the TV at night of Rachel Maddow and of you know, Sanjay Gupta and all of these people. And what happens when you take your phone, you take a picture at night, there's a strobe and it's the colors are weird and the, they're moving and so it's a still... Anyway... I'm making paintings of those screenshots. Mm -hmm. And I'm in California, so the color palette's completely emboldened by the fact that I'm in the land of, you know, Alice Neal and Richard Diebenkorn. Yeah. I would never have made that work. It's, in a sense, site-specific. It's weird. It's goofy. It's fun. It's serious. And it's all I want to do. I want to get through my column every day and run Design Observer every day and get back to making my paintings because they're teaching me something about looking. And that's also what designers do. They look and they look and they look some more. And that's, again, to come back to your very first question, the humility that a designer has in saying, I don't know what that word is. I've never seen that before. That curiosity, that inherent deep well of curiosity is what's going to save us. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in quarantine for two days or six months, if you can tap into wherever that curiosity will take you, it reaps benefits and dividends and rewards that you can't see going in. And that comes again back to your question, or I think that observation you made, which I couldn't agree with more, that that process is a much more rich arsenal of material for us right now than focusing on outcome where, because we don't have those practices in place, we're just going to be thwarted in our own efforts to reach them. I think that's a wonderful way to close out our conversation because it just it ties up so many of the threads of our conversation and just reinforces how important designers, creative thinkers, and this moment, you know, to both be helpful, but also to be introspective in creative practice. It's just, it's a pivotal moment. And I'm hopeful that we're all going to come out of it much stronger and hopefully having really thought about the cracks that this pandemic has exposed in our society and in the way that we work and um, maybe make us all a little bit more humane and start to address some of those needs. And you're already, I listened to a few of your podcasts before this one, and you're already doing that. I mean, I'm such a big Detroit fan and watching the renaissance of your city, seeing you become a UNESCO city, seeing what's going on in the schools there. You know, you you speak a lot, if I may, on your podcast, you talk to inclusivity and equitable 
ways of working and not just, it's not a team thing. It's a civic thing, right? right? It's like you're at a municipal level, at a governmental level. Again, I come back to those three people we had on our podcast in concert with my observation about the work you're doing there in a city that is not on a coast and Mm -hmm. you're fighting the fight that we're all fighting. And I think uh, it's about asking really hard questions and not being afraid of the answers and letting people speak who maybe traditionally were not given a chance to speak because those are the observations that we need right now. And those are the teams we should be building, not just the same old, same old. It's a scary moment, but it's a chance to rebuild in a way that gives more people a chance, a fighting chance, and to your beautiful word, a humane chance. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad we had a chance to talk today. And I know, you know, hopefully to continue our conversation in the future, Jessica, because- And in person. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I do also want to just mention, you know, I was looking at interest at the summit that you're putting together for the fall, the Uncertainty Summit through Design Observer. And I think these are going to be themes that we're going to continue to explore and, you know, hopefully be able to, I don't want to say resolve together, because I don't, I don't think that's quite the right thing, but start to see some pathways forward together. I couldn't agree more. And we hope we'll do our Uncertainty Summit here in Los Angeles on October 8th. But if for whatever reason we are unable to, we will find another way to do it. And just as we were able to do this podcast today, exactly. um, you know, our voices cannot be silenced just because we can't get on airplanes. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you again so much. And I uh, hope to talk with you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you, Olga. This has been the Detroit City of Design podcast. If you like what you just heard, please share this episode on social media, via email, or by any other means. For more information on DesignCore Detroit, visit designcore.org or search the hashtag DesignCoreDET. That's design, C-O-R-E-D-E-T. Keep up with the show by subscribing for free in your favorite podcast app. Just search Detroit City of Design. And we hope you will join us for Detroit Month of Design this September. The Detroit City of Design podcast is produced by Olu and Company, and edited by Jag in Detroit. Music by Jeff McIlwain, courtesy of Ghostly Records. Special thanks to Jessica Maloof of Design Core Detroit. This podcast is a product of Design Core Detroit, part of the College for Creative Studies in Detroit, Michigan.